I love the start of brand new things. The beginning of a project, um, the beginning of a class. When I was a kid, when I was in college, I always loved those first couple days, right? Because at that point, you know, I had as good a grade in the class as anyone else. There was all this potential. I was going to learn so many cool, new, and different things. And to me, the fall time just feels like this fresh restart. And I think that comes from when I was growing up, um, when the fall would roll around, that's when Bible studies and Boy Scouts and band and all those things that, you know, the cool athlete known as Andrew Bullock would do, uh, I would be around my friends again. And just that smell of the fall air and the way that the rain falls, okay, do you know what that smell is called? It's called petrichor. Right? That's the smell of the freshness of the world after the rain has fallen. And one day this week, I don't even remember which day it was, I walked out of my front door and I smelled the petrichor. And I just went like, ah, like today is going to be a good day. This is going to be a new fall season. Now, I don't know what your relationship with fall is right now. Because as I have grown to be an adult, summer is my favorite season. Because summer is when I can go kayaking and hiking and do all my fun hobbies. Um, but there's just this special place in my heart for fall. And it's kind of funny. We do have this like rhythm built into our culture. There's two times in the year when people are the most likely to start a new habit or to start a new rhythm. It's January, which is the you know, start of the calendar year. And in September, which is the start of the fall year or the school year that we're jumping in. Well, today is the kickoff of our fall season here at Dallas Church. So we gave you, um, you know, a little over a week or so to get into some rhythms of the school year at your house and some of that stuff that you're doing. But we are kicking off because, guys, the NFL's already kicked off, right? It's already going. All my friends are pulling out the fantasy football apps and being like, look, I'm winning. And I'm like, that's great. Good for you. Uh, but seriously, fall has kicked off. Well, here we are. We are going to jump into a new series and a new school year. And before we jump in with God's word today, I'd like to just take a minute and pray for our school year. Just as a church family, as a community, let's pray for what God's going to do this fall. Okay, take a deep breath with me. Father God, we ask for your spirit to be in our lives, to be in our hearts, to be in our church, and to be in our community and our workplaces as we follow you this fall. God, we ask for a fresh start to the things in our lives that maybe we've given up on, maybe we're, we're tired of trying, or things that we just are okay with where the status quo is. God, we pray your spirit would stir us up and help us to be your people everywhere we go. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We are jumping in with this series um, called 52, and we are going to be in the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible or a device or something, go ahead and open that up. Um, the book of Nehemiah is a little bit of an obscure story. When I was growing up, I went to Bible studies, Sunday school. Um, that was just a part of my life. And I don't remember ever having a Sunday school lesson on 
the book of Nehemiah. It's a cool and important part of the biblical story. And when we did a snap poll with first service, uh, nobody had heard a Sunday school lesson about this book of the Bible. But the book of Nehemiah is actually a part of several books that are going to tell a chunk of the biblical story. Because here at Dallas Church, we love the Bible. We believe what the Bible Project would say, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Ultimately, every story in the Bible, um, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Noah and the ark, like all the stuff, right? Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, all of those stories are leading to one story, which is the fact that Jesus gives us new life. And that invites us in the 21st century, we are Jesus followers. And that is why we take communion every single week at this church. We take the bread and the cup to celebrate the fact that Jesus died and rose again and gave us a way to be right with God. And I am summarizing a lot of stuff in those sentences. But I say that because that's who we are. That's our identity. That's what we are all about, following Jesus in the 21st century. And so it is a valid question for us to go, so Andrew, why does an architectural project in the 5th century BC, why does that matter if I'm trying to follow Jesus on Monday morning? That's a valid question, right? Because I'm not like busting out, you know, check out these aqueducts from Rome. Like, you're welcome, okay? I'm letting the Bible nerd, you know, stay a little penned up in this because that isn't going to, like, impact our life. But why does the fact that Nehemiah wanted to build a wall around a city, why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because it was a part of the texts and the stories that Jesus grew up knowing, like Jesus' Bible. It was a part of his culture and his story, and it's also a part of our story. Because as we follow Jesus, we now have a cultural heritage, a spiritual heritage in the Old Testament. And then here's just another thing. So in the book of Nehemiah, this is after God's people have just been through um, the Babylonian exile, which is beyond the worst day in like their national history. Because for so much, Israel's identity was that story of David versus Goliath which we have seen so many times in so many ways, where David was the little upstart. He's just a shepherd boy, right? And he's got a little sling, and he's going against the strong warrior. And Goliath is the empire. He is the armor and the spear that's just massive. He's a giant, and he could annihilate this little shepherd boy, except for the fact that God has his back. And so many times in Israel's history, that's who they were. They were this little nation. And then this empire would rise up and come against them. But God had their back until one day, Israel turned their back on God. And it wasn't just one day. It was many days. It was years and years and years of days that they had rejected. They said, we are no longer God's people. We don't want to live that way. We don't want to hold up that standard. We don't want to be submitted to what God would have for us. And so one day they go to battle. And little David is against the giant Goliath. And if you don't have God backing you up, what happens? Bad stuff. And so the Babylonian Empire, they tore down the city of Jerusalem, which at that moment, like that's, 
That's the temple. That's where God's presence was. And they tore it down. Can you imagine watching that? Like, did the bad guys just win? I took my, my little cousin to um, the very first, it was almost the midnight showing of the movie Infinity War. Okay, and this is your Marvel movie reference that you get from Andrew right now. But, um, but he was like six years old. And spoiler alert, I'll just say the end of Infinity War does not go well for the good guys. Okay, and my little cousin, like, we've been to how many superhero movies and the good guys like always win? And my little cousin's sitting there with me and he goes, I hate whoever made this movie. Because he just couldn't handle like, did the good guys just lose? And I think that's where God's people were at in that moment. Have you ever been there? You ever look out at the world and you think, did the, did the good guys just lose? Well, I think that this story of Nehemiah, because the story of Nehemiah is the story of the return. And it's the story of hope and the story of the fact that God wasn't done with Israel in that moment. And they go back and it is the story of rebuilding after something has been torn down. And I wonder, right, so the Israelite people, they have just experienced something where they are dispersed by a traumatic event. Okay, they go through a season that is prolonged, full of uncertainty and instability. They watched structures that they relied on in their life be torn down. And I wonder if some of us who have maybe lived through the last couple years, that might hit our soul somewhere. That might speak to us in a different way. Now, I am not saying, right, that when I sat in lockdown in COVID-19 with my internet connection, right, watching Netflix, that that was anywhere near what the Israelites experienced in a Babylonian exile. But have you ever walked into a situation and it's not like it used to be? When you went back to your workplace, did it just feel kind of weird, kind of different? I think that's where Israel was at. And so I want to cue up the story of Nehemiah. Like I said, if you got your Bible, go to chapter one. Um, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra are actually one book in the Hebrew. There are two books in our Bible, um, but they're part of this collection of stories that tell the story of the return and how God was not done with them. So I'm going to tell you in chronological order how this happens, all right? Because if you did not know this, there's some scattered with how the Bible tells this story. But so the Babylonians, they take Israel into exile, and then Babylon gets King of the Hill style pushed off by the Persian Empire. So then Persia takes over Babylon. And the Babylonians had their strategy for keeping people subdued was they scattered them all across. So like if they took over Portland, they would take all the Portlanders and put them in New York City and in Phoenix, Arizona and Salt Lake City, Utah and just disperse everybody up so then nobody can gather together and say, hey, wait, no, we want to rebel. We want to take our land. But what the Persians said, and you can just straight up find this. This is a historical fact and record. And so I just say that because it's important for us to know these are not just stories, right? But this is history that the Persians allowed the Israelites to go back. They said everyone who was scattered, they can now go back to their homeland. So this guy named Zerubbabel, which is an awesome name when you're going to build stuff out of the rubble. So Zerubbabel goes back to the rubble and he rebuilds the temple with this group of 
um, Jewish people that return back to the land. Now, while he is doing that, he does that in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and they rebuild the temple. When they rebuild the temple, the people who saw the old temple, they start crying. And the people who didn't see the old temple, they start crying. But they start crying for two different reasons. Because the people who, see, who hadn't seen the old temple, they say, this is so cool. Like, we've got a temple, guys. This is awesome. And everyone who saw what the old temple looked like was crying because it was pathetic compared to what it used to be. And they just felt like what they were doing and what things were becoming was not what they had hoped they would be. And so Zerubbabel, right, builds the temple out of the rubble. And then um, you have a 50-year gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. And what happens in that 50-year gap is the book of Esther and some of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and what they prophesy and preach to Israel. So we're going to move real quickly through that. Ezra is my homeboy. Ezra is a Bible nerd who has just spent so much time studying the Torah, and he goes and is teaching and kind of re-educating, re-implanting God's word into people. And so, see guys, there's a place for Bible nerds um, were needed. But uh, then you've got this guy named Nehemiah, and that's where we're going to jump in today with Nehemiah chapter 1, okay? Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Um, it says, so Nehemiah, he talks to Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So they've had 50 years to rebuild this city. And I bet you Nehemiah, he's excited. He's like, okay, what's the good news? Like, what are we going to do? You've had 50 years to work on this project. How's it going? And they say, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the walls are down. That is very sad. And in their day, that's a really big deal. And it's bigger than just like, you know, if your house doesn't have a fence around it. Okay, I know people where they don't have a fence around their yard. They're just fine with that. They have no desire to spend lots of money to build a fence around their yard. They're just cool with it. But for the society and for the people, to have no walls, that's almost like if we just decided one day we're done with the Department of Defense. Like every military, everything, we just, we just don't need to protect ourselves anymore. It's gonna be fine. That would be bad news for us, right? I watch what happens on the Dallas Community Facebook page when the internet goes out, right? I see how people, you know, they panic, and you got to love the irony of that, right? So we all grab our phones for the service, and we're complaining about how we have no internet on the internet. And that always kind of is interesting. But you think about that. What if we turned off the power, the internet, and we ripped every asphalt road out of Dallas for 50 years? What would that do to our fair city? Like, what, what would happen? Not good stuff. Some of you are like, I got gravel roads. I have four-wheel drive. I can do this. Like, I can't. Okay, we have a Prius. But it's this, like, destroyed state that the people of Israel find themselves in. And so Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, verse 4, I sat down and wept and mourned and continued fasting for days. 
praying before the God of heaven. So this breaks Nehemiah's heart in kind of a different way. And here's what I think is interesting about that. Those walls have been down for 70 years. Right? Nobody is tweeting out, like, hashtag, the walls are down. Like, it is brand new. This is news, everybody. You're like, no, this has been a thing for 70 years. But it just hits Nehemiah's heart in the right place. It just hits it in a place where he's bugged by this. He's worried about other people. And so I might encourage us, what are some of the things that people around us might just accept as a fact? that bug us. Maybe it bugs you. Maybe there's something you see in your school, in your workplace, in your community, where you say, somebody needs to do something about that. And maybe the answer is God is working on a somebody to do something about that. And when you look in the mirror, maybe you are that somebody that is supposed to do something about that. Because that's what Nehemiah does. He's brokenhearted over this issue. And I wonder, what are those things? that our culture just accepts, that our world just says, well, yeah, it's been this way for 70 years. It's just, it's just been this way. The walls are down. But Nehemiah gets so bugged about this that he starts to pray and fast and ask God. So I'm going to read and summarize some of his prayer because his prayer here is very theologically rich. In this passage today, cards on the table, spoiler alert, Nehemiah is going to make three different acts, asks of people. He's going to ask three different people to help him with the walls. Number one is he starts with God. Verse 5, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray you day and night for the people of Israel. So he, he starts his prayer and it is rooted in the truth of who God is. The difference that he wants to make in the world is rooted in the reality of God's heart. And, and I think this is just so true about humans. When we look out in the world and we see things we don't like, oftentimes that does come from a God place in our hearts, a place where our heart reflects God's character. So when you see the oppressed and the broken and the downtrodden, right, which sound like really old Bible words, but our world is filled with it, and when that bugs you, good. It's supposed to. Because we are God's image bearers, and we are supposed to be disturbed by the things that disturb him. I love Nehemiah's honesty here. He confesses the sin of the people of Israel. With we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. So he's not like pointing the finger, like, look at those Israelites. They need to get off, you know, and get out of, get off the couch, quit watching the Netflix, go build the walls. No, he says, I'm a part of this system. I'm a part of what is wrong. And then he calls God back to the great big story. The great big story that he said in his word, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name and dwell there. He says, God, call, he calls it back to this great big story of what God is doing in the world. And then... He says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. God, hear me 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success and grant him mercy in the sight of, ooh, okay, this is our transition into the next chunk, the sight of this man. Okay, who is this man? I'm so glad you asked. That's the next point on my outline. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So he finds himself heartbroken over this issue, and then he's also in a place where he has means, motive, and opportunity to do something about it. And so here he is, the cupbearer to the king. Now, um, that job was a pretty important job. Not just anybody became the cupbearer to the king. You had to be smart and good-looking and handsome and pretty good at organizing, and he was also like part of the security detail and also kind of brave because they were trying to assassinate kings all the time, and so the cupbearer, he'd have to like take a sip to make sure that the wine was not poison, and which is not a job that I want. But apparently, Nehemiah, he's got this job, and he's close to the king. And so notice some time passes. Nehemiah prays and talks to God about this for three whole months before he ever says anything to the king. And I, I think there's a lesson in that, because it's not like he just walks in the next day. Like, he has thought this through. So he comes in, and he commits the ultimate Persian faux pas. He is sad in the king's presence. And you're all allowed to gasp, right? Because that's so shocking. He's sad. No, we have a culture where we do wear our emotions a little bit more. Back then and in that culture, you did not want to be the buzzkill in the king's court because if you were the buzzkill, you got buzzkilled. Like, that's what happened. And so he shows that he is sad. And the king says, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of heart. So he's like, hey, what's going on, Nehemiah? And I love this verse right here. I love how honest it is. Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. This is not the peace that surpasses understanding. Nehemiah is shaken up, and he feels like, you know, the bottom drop out of his stomach. And have you had that when you ask someone something before? Hey, one of the scariest times I ever asked anyone anything was when I asked Joe to be my girlfriend. She's now my wife, right? We have a baby. It worked out, right? But, but in the moment, like, 18-year-old Andrew did not know this. And I remember I was so nervous. It's not often that I'm at a loss for words. And Joe was very super patient because I, it, was, it was brutal, guys. Like, I'm so glad there's not video footage of this because I was just like, so, so we've been hanging out for a while, and I like you, and and I don't, and we, I, it's like, I just was so bad. And I was so anxiety riddled. Well, maybe that's part of these Nehemiah asks. Is when we ask for something, when we step into this next step, it might be a big deal. And so the king looks at Nehemiah and he says, okay, what are you requesting? Notice he just gets right down to brass tacks, okay? He says, oh yeah, so then he tells the king about how the city is destroyed. He's distraught over that. And then the king looks at him and says, okay, so what's the solution? That's the problem. What's the solution? And this is what I've learned about interacting with people of influence and with resources, is that they don't just want to hear problems. They don't have time to hear Andrew talk about all the problems that I see and the things that I don't like. But rather, they want to get straight to the chase. They want to cut to it and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? 
And so I've actually had this habit in my life of trying to have my asks locked and loaded so that when someone says, okay, what do we need? What do we need to make a difference here? I try to have a couple things that I can just bust out. So one of those, silly example, but it's from Andrew's life, so here you go. One of those was for our church nursery. Um, we needed, we were remodeling the kids' room, and we needed some changing tables for our nursery. And I was down in Phoenix, Arizona, hanging out with some of my friends, and this was some family that were close to us, and they had resources, right, high-capacity leaders. And they looked at me, they said, Andrew, what does Dallas Church need right now? And I was, like, taken aback, because that wasn't where I was expecting dinner to go, right? But I had it locked and loaded. I was like, we need changing tables for our nursery, and I don't have that in my budget right now. And so then they bought us changing tables for our nursery. Well, here's how this story goes, which I just think is kind of interesting. So we got those changing tables for the nursery in January of 2020. <laughs> so then we put these changing tables in, and uh, then we shut down kids' ministry for like a year. And we navigated this crazy season. Well, then, I don't know if you know this, but just, I don't have any data to back this up, but there are just more babies in our church coming out of COVID than there were beforehand. And so here, I don't know, like, God was doing something. Like, and it's, it's changing tables. But, like, what was God doing to prepare the way and get stuff ready for what was going on. And I wonder what asks you might have, locked and loaded. And so Nehemiah, he makes the ask. He says, okay, he throws a prayer up to God, and it's not a Hail Mary, it's a Hail Yahweh. And he says, I want you to help me and send me to the land. And so then if you look way down at the end of the section, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And, and when I told Pastor Mike Miller about my habit, about trying to have the Nehemiah ask ready, and we were just talking leadership and talking stuff, and I like his challenge to me, he said, Andrew, you're ready to ask someone with resources and influence, but are you ready to ask Jesus every day about what you need? Are you going to the true source? Because like the king of Persia, he's just an agent right now. Like all his stuff, everything that he has, that's ultimately God's, and he's releasing it to the work of God. And so I just think it's interesting and it's good to put that in perspective. Well, we got one more ask, all right, that Nehemiah is going to do. We got one more ask. He's going to ask the people of Israel to jump in on this project. So he gets everything from the king. He rides into Jerusalem. There are many times in the biblical story when I have to look at people and I say, all right, do you see what they're doing in this Bible story? Please never, ever, ever do that. There are lots of times where people in the Bible do stuff. I'm like, youth group, please, never do that. This is one of those times that I can say, he did some good stuff. Let's do that. Okay, so this is positive. He rides into town. He does not set up shop with the we are going to build the wall campaign. Like, he does not walk in with the social media and all the t-shirts and all the swag and everything and just be like, all right, everybody, this is what we're going to do. But he shows up and he does his homework. He looks around. He goes on a nighttime scouting mission to see the state of the walls. He talks to people and sees the lay of the land. And I wonder if sometimes we get really passionate about an issue or a cause and we go storming in to tell someone about something 
And it can get shot down, or they can say, well, that's a bad idea because it won't work because of this, 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 and this. And sometimes we need to be careful that we don't let these ideas or these visions from God of what we're going to do, you don't let it get steamrolled too early. I have been watching way too much Shark Tank this summer, which is a show where they pitch the billionaires and the millionaires, right, on your business. I want you to invest in me. And sometimes, like the investors, they say, you're just too early. You got to do some footwork first. You got to get some resources, do some of the legwork. And that's what Nehemiah does. So he, he gets up, he walks around, and notice he has opposition pop up like the instant he steps into town. He hasn't even told anyone what he's going to do. And these two people, one of them's name is Sanballat the Horonite. One is Tobiah the Ammonite, which are great names for bad guys, right? Because this is going to be Nehemiah's arch nemesis. And I'm going to let Ben talk about them later. But uh, Nehemiah goes and he does the homework and he gathers the people together. And in verse 17, he says, do you see the trouble we're in? This is the problem. Here, the walls are burned down. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them, this is Nehemiah, he told them the hand of my God that was on me and also the words the king had spoken to me. And I love, Nehemiah just walks them right up to the edge. He says, this is what the problem is. We need to build the wall, right? This is the solution. These are the resources. This is what God is doing in my life. And he doesn't strong arm them. He doesn't say, well, and if you were true Israelites, like you'd follow me and do the right thing. He just leaves it open, and they say, they come to the conclusion, let's build the wall. Well, let's do it. And so they get to work. And do they successfully build the wall? I'll let Ben tell you about that next week. But I want to come back to this question. What is God asking you to start? What are the walls that are down? in your life, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, your community, your workplace, maybe even in just your own heart? What are some rhythms or structures or things that have fallen by the wayside that we might need to step back into and embrace? What are maybe some of the things we need to ask others? Like what's the ask, that Nehemiah courage to ask someone to come with you, to participate in something. I don't know what it is, but I think it's a good encouragement in the beginning of the fall for us to step into this, for us to ask that question. And so I have, real quick, I have some Nehemiah asks for our church family. I would say, if you're looking at what God is going to start in your life, if you don't have a habit of being in God's word and praying with him every day, I think that's a great place to start. So maybe that's a good foundation. If you're getting back into a relationship with God, you're trying the Jesus thing out, download the YouVersion Bible app, find what it is that you need to make that structure happen, and, and make a commitment. Make that happen. Um, another one is to make Sunday worship gathering, being in church, being together a priority. And I would just say, right, one of my Nehemiah things that I see is in the last two years, I have seen so many people in the struggles of day-to-day -day life, they have leaned back from faith. They have leaned back from some of the rhythms that used to support them. And I think we should lean forwards. 
I think this is a moment to step in. And so I would encourage you to make being in the room, if you can, singing songs, opening God's word, worshiping together, and just submit to the experience of what that can grow in your heart. And I'm not going to promise you that it's going to fix stuff. I'm not going to promise you, you know, that it's going to do more than it will. But, but if we take time and we say, God, I want to follow you, and we show up with consistency, I think God honors that. I think there's something in that. And so I would ask our church to make that a priority. And with that, I would also ask you to pray about for three days even. Maybe you want to do the Nehemiah thing. Do your homework. For three days, pray about if there's one of these life groups that we're kicking off that is there for you. If that's the one that is there for you, and I would encourage you, don't go alone to that life group. Like, don't go alone. Bring someone with you. Someone maybe God has on your heart. Do you have means, motive, opportunity, right? To disciple someone or encourage them or bring them to Jesus? I think these would be great steps. And if none of our groups work for you, maybe God's saying you need to start something with someone. Maybe you got a friend and they're not willing to come to, you know, someone's house and study the Bible there, but maybe they'll meet you for coffee. Maybe they'll start a rhythm of getting into God's word and praying with you. And if you have something big on your heart, something that you see in our world, something you see in your workplace, I'd encourage you to enter into that season of prayer and fasting about it. And it's a big ask to ask Americans, right, to go without food because we are the land of McDonald's. Like, we are the land of lots of food. But maybe you just start by skipping lunch one day a week and you spend that time praying to see what God does. Guys, I'm so excited because I know that when the church is following Jesus, right? When we are going after the things that break our hearts because they break God's, that's when we're at our best. That's when historically hospitals have been built, orphanages have started, schools, things that care for people. That is when the church is at its best. And so I just ask, what's God going to start? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We pray that you would be working in our hearts. Help us to start new good and healthy things. God, we ask you to be in our church and be in our lives this fall. We love you. Amen.